Okay, say something. Have you ever loved somebody? <laughs> All right, wonderful. Good day and welcome to the Climate Change Therapy Podcast, a product of BlockRadius.net, your most trusted online media outlet for urban planning and unrelated topics. Today is December 9th, 2019. I'm your host, Hank Felsman. Thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time listening this evening, this is the podcast where we talk about the depressing topic of climate change. Because if not here, where? Not at parties. People want to have fun at parties. Not talk about climate change. Now at the office, there's no talking at the office. Shut up and do your work. We communicate on Gchat only, or maybe Slack. How about with your Uber driver? I think not. Climate change is a sore subject with Uber drivers. How about on a blind date? Well, that depends. If you're like our next guest and you talk and you take all your blind dates to Outback Steakhouse, that could get a little awkward. Uh, it's cruel what they do to those cows. So unless you're taking your blind dates to Hip City Veg, you, like so many listeners out there, are likely suffering from a deficiency of discussion, a repression of climate change conversation, and could thus use a little bit of climate change therapy. Our world's got a problem, and it's only healthy for all of us that we talk about it. Today we have a very special guest for you. His work is very directly related to addressing the important topic of climate change, working as he does in the transportation sector. Don't know if that's specific enough or not. He is Tomthy Haney. I don't know if I, I have that right, but before I bring out Tomthy, let's take a, sorry, his name just, it gets me. Let's take a quick moment to thank our sponsor, the one and only William and William Associates Incorporated. The, the one and only William and William. There's only one. William and William. Associates, the consulting company that specializes in all kinds of services. Anything you need. Accounting services, legal services, creative strategy, film editing, acting, writing, cooking, painting, interior decorating, <laughs> music of all kinds. William and William Associates Incorporated are there for you. The one and only William and William. And of course, we also have to thank our sponsor, Roland Cases, the most rocking suitcases on wheels. Why break your back carrying all that baggage? Roland Cases, whether you're flying to South America to catch the northern... What? To catch the northern lights? <laughs> that was a mistake. Or taking the ferry to Nova Scotia for the great hunt. Roland Cases are the suitcases on wheels. For you and your life's journey, Roland Cases. And with that, ladies, gentlemen... Listeners old and new, I bring you Tomthy Haney. All right, Tomthy, welcome to Climate Change Therapy. Uh, how are you doing this evening? I don't know if my introduction uh, is, is one that you were quite worthy of. It's a very elegant, long, drawn-out Intro. Oh no, I was thinking of, of last week. Uh, but Tomthy, can you take a <laughs> take a moment to uh, introduce your, yourself? Yeah, I'm good. I think I'm worthy. I I like Outback Steakhouse. Okay, I that's good. Dig into a blooming onion every now and again. <laughs> Guilt free. No, to be honest, I blue cheese onion hamburger. Was that a Outback? 
yeah, uh, I am. I'm Tom Fahini. <laughs> no, actually, okay. too many. Uh, as mm. Hank, as yeah. Hank said. Yeah, you can say your real name once we're on here. Yeah, yeah. It's really just uh, just the intro that um, people on LinkedIn look at. So. Yeah, I'm trying to hide myself from all those people searching me on the internet. A lot of them trying to get at me. I'm pretty popular <laughs> these days. All right, Tom Thief. Um, so, uh, you want to just tell our listeners, for those of them who don't know you, which is everybody, because you don't exist, Tom Thief. Um, <laughs> what do you do for a living? How is it related to climate change? Why do you think I invited you on as a guest here? Uh, sure. Um, so, I work for an organization called the Northeast Quarter Commission. Uh, we are a federally mandated commission that works to ensure that there's no cross-subsidization between all the different transit agencies in Amtrak um, that run on the Northeast Corridor, so basically the rail between D.C. and Boston. Uh, so essentially what that means is that we run a cost allocation model to ensure that uh, each agency is charged appropriately for their relative use of the rail. Okay, um, and so, so how would you explain that for our listeners out there? Uh, so to put that in more uh, <laughs> regional context uh, here in Philadelphia, so, you know, uh, when SEPTA runs trains from Philadelphia to Trenton, yes. they're running on Amtrak rail. Um, and so they need to pay oh, okay. Amtrak for use of that rail. Uh, you know, it's a tenant owner relationship. Um, and likewise, when NJ Transit runs from New York to Trenton, they also need to pay Amtrak for use of that rail. Okay. Um, I, didn't, so, I didn't realize that at all. Yeah, so Amtrak owns the majority of the rail. Metro North, Connecticut, and Massachusetts own small portions of the rest of the rail. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's essentially just to make sure that each agency is uh, equally and fairly paying the appropriate amount for their use of the rail based on financial information and statistics. Um, And then so the payment that's made via uh, an operating side and a capital side um, is then uh, used to fund various, uh, well, at least on the capital side, it's used to fund a lot of projects uh, up and down the corridor. Mm -hmm. And um, do you often talk about climate change at at work? I mean, you operate, you work in the regional rail uh, industry, um, if if you can call it an industry. Um, which is, you know, which is part of the solution to address climate change. So yeah, I mean, so it's the regional rail and the inner city rail industry. So, you know, Amtrak being inner city rail um, and, you know, agencies like SEPTA and J Transit being uh, regional rail or, or commuter rail, whatever you want to call it. Um, uh, yeah, sure. It definitely comes up, um, you know, not in my day to day job since I'm not necessarily on the project planning side of things. I, I work a lot with that stuff but i'm not the one necessarily planning those things but Mm. um you know we do work with with those plans a lot Uh, amtrak has given us multiple presentations about the work that they're doing for climate mitigation i mean a lot of the corridor runs up and down the coast in low-lying areas that are in floodplains that are you know likely to flood in the next 10 20 50 100 years whatever it may be um, so these are areas that are, uh, you know, in high need of, uh, I don't know, some sort of, you know, upgrade, whatever it might be. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's something that, you know, uh, we talk about occasionally that is in um, that is included in the plans that, that we work on, for mm-hmm. sure. I, so, as you know, I'm, I'm from New Jersey. You're from Pennsylvania. And something that 
interested me about the regional rail system was in, in New Jersey, it's pretty robust. NJ Transit goes, I'm not going to say everywhere, but almost everywhere. A yeah. lot of the state is, is covered very heavily, whereas Pennsylvania <laughs> seems like the regional rail connectivity is a lot weaker or kind of one directional, just very east-west, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Harrisburg. They they used to have regional rail as far as I understand up to up to Scranton, um, but that's no longer the case. It used to be more interconnected, and it no longer is. So how come New Jersey was able to sustain um, that connectivity when Pennsylvania wasn't? Well, I wouldn't call rail that goes from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh regional rail. So mm. you know, SEPTA's rail, their regional rail, you know, SEPTA being southeastern Pennsylvania. Transportation mm-hmm. Authority uh, is meant to serve the Philadelphia region, so they're they're not intended on getting passengers from Philly to Pittsburgh or right. Scranton to to um, to Philly the same way that NJ Transit is for the vast majority of their their rail is intended on getting passengers from New York and mm-hmm. you know New York suburbs. Uh, you know, yes, the Atlantic City line does exist to get passengers from Atlantic City to Philly, um, mm-hmm. but that is, in a sense, also a regional rail serving Philadelphia. Gotcha. Okay, so um, NJ Transit is New York's regional rail. I, SEPTA I mean, is Philadelphia's from a rail perspective. Rail. Primarily, yes. Like, yes, if you want to isolate it into two different sections, you have NJ Transit's New York regional rail, which mm-hmm. is the vast majority of its system, and NJ Transit's Philadelphia Regional Rail, which is just the one line, the Atlantic City line. Mm-hmm. And then obviously their bus network supports the entire state. Um, but yeah, you know, regional rail is generally centralized around one city and connecting the surrounding metropolitan region. Gotcha. So, um, but yeah, you're definitely right in that NJ Transit's network is much bigger than SEPTA's. SEPTA's is, is pretty good, but you know, but yeah, New York being a much bigger city... Andrew Chances is a is right. really bigger. It's kind of a whole state. Um, okay, and and how about um, talking about climate change with with your friends? Do you ever have conversations outside of of work about the future, the yeah. apocalypse, and whatnot? To be honest, I feel like they happen less now. Like uh, in the last, I don't know, year or two, I feel like we've just gotten tired. <laughs> Have we got just gotten tired, or have we left grad school? Um, well, that's part of it. I mean, but I'm not even just talking about like with my grad school friends. Um, I mean, I remember like these conversations like with my non grad school friends definitely used to be more prevalent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, maybe it is just a cynicism of like, okay, well, I guess nothing's ever going to change, and we'll keep going on living the way we're living. Mm-hmm. and you know face this impending doom when it comes <laughs> so per- personally i i never really talked about climate change before grad school a lot of my, my friends i'm not gonna say they're not interested in it but what's why bring it up what's sort of the point of that it, de- it depended on the individual like there were certain people that i talked to about it with and others that i didn't for yeah. sure but and and i guess i will now but it's in that kind of post-grad school environment um uh I just just for our listeners, I, I, I took an energy class that was very influential that I saw as a form of climate change therapy. The following semester, I took kind of this sea level rise class, that an, another small seminar, kind of my climate change therapy. And then I went with through withdrawal, 
Uh, so that's sort of the impetus to starting this podcast is those when you leave grad school and you don't have these, you know, you don't have the, the luxury to kind of envision the future in these small groups um, for three hours. Um, you don't really have those opportunities to kind of think your way uh, and process uh, the existential threat that we are um, facing. Not to uh, not to judge the, the name of your podcast or why you took those those classes in grad school but did you actually consider the classes in grad school therapeutic because i just find them anxiety inducing i mean i think we definitely need to you know approach the subjects and actually think about them because i don't think you know me not talking about them in the last year or two like i was previously is is good i think you know pretending that this is uh not a problem of ours is obviously not the approach to take but like yeah the more i talk about it mm -hmm. the more i freak out you know what i mean yeah i know i know what you mean and it's a very valid question. I think that part of the reason I did find it therapeutic and that I continue to find talking about it therapeutic um, is because what creates the anxiety is the uncertainty. But when you take these classes or you talk to climate change experts such as yourself, um, you <laughs> kind of find out... For the out, record, I'm, I'm no climate change expert. <laughs> you, you find out... I, everyone knows. We all know that. We all know. I was just kidding. Uh, I, but I, I find like I, I get information and I, I learn what the Northeast corridor is thinking about. And it's just, it's a little, little more information and it's a little less uncertainty. Um, so just, I don't know. And also kind of the approach kind of, and, and feeling that other people feel the same way I do. Um, that connection can also be therapeutic. So it's information and it's also solidarity in, 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 in the, uh, eco anxiety. Um, that is therapeutic. I get. I guess. Yeah, I understand that. But I guess it's like. I guess a lot of my exposure to it is reading a lot of news articles, which is, you know, definitely different than taking like an energy policy class, where you maybe, you know, walk away with like, actual, tangible approaches. Like you know, these mm -hmm. are policy approaches that we can implement that are going to have direct. Uh, impacts as opposed to you know just reading um, a news article that says oh the UN climate report is saying that if we don't do this by this date you know uh, you know emissions are going to go up x percent or it's like hey this mm -hmm. is the point of no return date like oh scientists are saying like you know uh, a degree and a half is is inevitable now no matter what we do you know it kind of just always seems to be like that doom and gloom and maybe that's just like the sensationalism of the news cycle Right. Um, but it seems like kind of like every passing day, there's like another article that it's like, yeah, uh, it's too late. We should have done that thing yesterday and, um, we're all going to die. Do you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, facts can be numbing, especially when, when the report came out and maybe this is just me, but there's a report that came out that talked about the financial impact of climate change and how the U.S. would stand to lose trillions of dollars by 2100. And it seemed like the the media, everyone was making a big deal of it because now it's like, oh, people are going to care now because it has to do with money. But but like my opinion was like, I care way less about like the money lost than, you know, than the, um, let's say like the percentage of coral reefs lost or, or the... Um, the uh, you know, percentage of uh, of coastal land being lost or the uh, farmland lost. But like to me, it's like the dollars 
it, it's numbing to me. I have no idea what that means. Right, but you're someone that already cared. So like the number, the numbers, like the the dollars associated. Maybe that was a way to get people who didn't care before to care now. Like, because yeah. I mean, money is. Let's be honest, a driver of a lot of things, and is a driver of climate change itself. Like, yeah, a, a lot of the reasons for climate change can be drawn back to to greed. Yeah, it just seems like it's it's it strikes the same note of cognitive distance, or would among people who you know what's what is what does it mean a trillion dollars to them, to to people like who hear that what is the loss of a trillion dollars in twenty one hundred what how do you th- process that? Yeah, I mean especially when you can't determine what that direct impact on your individual wallet is. And also when it's so far in the future, even though it's not really that far in the future, but like in your individual lifespan, it's really far in the future. Yeah. So we as a country, especially, are very short-sighted. And so to plan that far in the future, Mm -hmm. to think about like, you know, the impacts of something economically, let alone environmentally. Yeah. 80 years down the road, I think it's really hard for people. And it's the size of the numbers as well. Like there's some phenomenon, I forgot what the the word is but people give a stronger reaction or they give no stronger reaction to a a much higher number so you get like diminishing returns so if i were to say like five people died in this monsoon Mm -hmm. and then i were to say 50 people died in this monsoon right like your reaction is not going to be 10 times as harsh right you know and if i said that i don't know if i said like a million people will be dead by, I don't know, a million people. Let's say I just say like a million people are going to die. And then I said like, I said like, a, like one little girl <laughs> whose name is Mary, who liked to play with, you know, uh, toys and cars and dolls or whatever Mary likes to play with. And she ate blueberries. And Mary loved blueberries. She could never eat just one at a time. She would always take two. And you can like relate to that. And she had hazel eyes and brown hair. And um, she she loved math and (laughs) English and science and was the sweetest girl and so nice to everybody. And and then she died. Wow, you're really giving a lot of details. And then like a million people died. So like what's more impactful? The one person that you know. So for me, the the idea is like, a trillion dollars in 2100. I mean that like what's more sad a trillion dollars in 2100 or a billion dollars in 2100. It's kind of the same. Sure. Uh yeah, you just uh, evoked the 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 politician strategy, you know. Like, <laughs> I met so and so in, you know, Topeka, Kansas, you know. I mean it's yeah. a strategy that has stood the test of time. Yeah. Put a face on it. Yeah. For a reason. Um, actually, so while we're on this topic of, of big numbers, I think this is a good time for a quick segment I like to call climate change fact and react, just because this reminded me of a particular fact I wanted you to react to. Okay. So, um, <laughs> okay, so I have the numbers here for the amount of hairs on all human heads on Earth. Wow. That's wild. I also have I'm already the, freaking out. I don't even know the number. Just I also, the fact that you have that. <laughs> I also have the number for 
all the grains of sand on Earth. I have the number. These have been estimated by people smarter than me. Someone didn't count them? I have the number for atoms in the entire known universe. I have the number for... Okay, so... Are you going to tell me any of these <laughs> Just take a wild guess at any of them. Take a wild guess. Um, I, I mean, I don't know. Like, It's going to be something like, you know, like one to the, like, you know, four millionth or something for like <laughs> some of these things, like the sand one, you know. Like, not one to the, but you know what I'm saying. So, <laughs> I know what you're saying. It, they, they write this in 10 to the... Right, ten, yeah, exactly. Thank you. So, okay. So what do you think is more, you know, hairs yeah, like on hairs on all human heads or grains the... of sand on Earth? Sorry, say that again. What what is there more of, hairs on all human heads in the world or grains of sand on Earth? Uh, well, it, I you know, let's get <laughs> you know, let's get climate change dark here. I, let's say uh, I, I was previously going to say sand before we started building all this concrete stuff. You know, <laughs> now there's no more sand in the world. And glass. Yeah, yeah, that's a good good question. And there's a lot more people than there were. Are we saying all kinds of sand, just beach sand, desert sand? Um, this doesn't specify. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to say sand. There's more sand in the world. Correct. There's more sand in the world. I wish we had a sound effect for that. I can add it in later. <laughs> I won't. Um, th- so there's 10 to the 15th power of hairs on all human heads in the world. There's 10 to the 23rd power of grains of sand on Earth. That's significantly more. That's about... Eight times eight more. <laughs> no, it's more than that. It's eight times more? No, no it's eight it's times just, ten more? You just, move, you just move the decimal place over eight times, but it's going to be more than eight times more than that. It's going to be a lot more than eight times more. I don't that. know how exponents work. <laughs> it's a problem. Um, anyway. So it's basically just like saying you basically add, you're basically adding 15 zeros to it, 10. It's 10 to the eighth times as much. Uh, yes, that's correct. Sure. That which means it's a hundred million times as much. But okay, so for every hair on a human head, there's a hundred million grains of sand. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's how it works. Anyway, moving on. This okay. is the, this is the next one. This is related. <laughs> so if there's ten to the twenty-third grains of sand on Earth, did you know that they've estimated how many atoms there are in the universe? It's probably like. Uh, I don't know, 10 to the, it's like 10 to the 10 to the 10 to the 10, you know? They just can't even, they can't even write out the number. Surprisingly, not that much more. What? It's it's 10 to the 81st power. How is that possible? They, they I, I would estimate that there's like as many atoms in my body as there are <laughs> grains of sand in the world. Well, they know the size of the universe because of light and shit, and they know the size of all atoms, or I guess, or atoms. They know the size of those. So it's 10 to the 81st power is atoms in the, the known universe. That seems small. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's a pretty large number. You want, so there's, there's something that they've calculated that there's uh, a lot more of. On, in, there's a lot more of that exists. Um, can, you, can you take a guess at what, what is a larger number than all the atoms in the known universe? Uh electrons uh, that's a great <laughs> guess but it, it it doesn't have to do anything with atoms love <laughs> that's probably a closer guess i don't know you're not even gonna believe me but and 
If you're listening, you're also not going to believe me, but you can look it up independently. Possible chess moves. Wow. <laughs> Interesting. So That's th- wild. How many possible chess moves? Oh, sorry, not chess moves. Possible chess games. Possible different combinations that a chess game can unfold in. Still, I mean, it's the same concept. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's 10 to the 121st power possible chess Well, right, because a chess move, it's, yeah, because you could have one chess move multiplied by every other chess move to get, yeah, because there's more games possible because you take all the game, all the moves, combine them into one, change just one of those moves, get a completely different game. Right, yeah, but yeah, but atoms in the universe? <laughs> Crazy. No, no, I, I would, I would definitely think that there are more atoms in the universe than possible chess games. There's more possible chess games. Wow, that's intense. No uh, I don't know, ten to the ninety uh, seventh. <laughs> no, I said ten to the one hundred twenty first. Oh, I didn't power. hear you. Yeah, that's wild. There's ten to the one hundred first power possible chess games. So, final fact. That's the craziest fact in the universe, that there's more possible chess games <laughs> than there are atoms in the universe. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that we've estimated the amount of atoms in the universe. That's insane. Well, we could be wrong. First of all, like the fact Who that we, we can even see an atom is crazy. Yeah. Well, can we, can we see an atom or do we just know it exists? I have no idea. I don't know anything about science. Okay. So, back to climate change therapy. <laughs> We don't know anything about science. So getting back to, to climate change, I want to talk about some of the, the moral conundrums that we face uh, with, with climate change. Um, uh, I'll give an example of, of something that I did, one minor thing, where um, in February, about two years ago, for a whole month, shortest month of the year, I didn't eat meat for one month. I eat meat now. I, I, March first, I broke it, but for, <laughs> for it is no longer February. For one month in February 2017, I did not eat meat for the whole month, <laughs> all 28 days. So, what sacrifices have you made, Tom Thee? Vegetarians around the world are like, "Wow, dude, cool." Hey, Mike. But I have not done that. Hey, so. Mike. Speaking of the mic. Oh, my bad, my bad. <laughs> yeah. So what sacrifices have you made um, to address sort of the moral conundrums that uh, have come up with climate change? Or what sacrifices have you not made and, and why not? Um, there's never, I'll be honest, there's nothing that I've done like temporarily like that. I've never um, been like, oh, I'm going to, you know, sacrifice this for this amount of time, right? Um, which, you know, maybe I should. Um, but I do try to generally, you know, have some rules of thumb that I live by. Um, so, <laughs> you know, so we were talking about transportation in the beginning, that's what I do. Um, and, and I've always said that, so, so biking is kind of what got me into to transportation, what eventually got me interested in cities, what eventually led me to grad school um really opened a, a world of possibilities for you, me you got into cities because you hate biking no no no, because of biking uh, right so because oh, you I started, like biking. yeah i started okay. i started biking as a means of transportation um and it kind of opened my eyes to to the wonders of, of cities really um i didn't really have an interest in cities until i started navigating them by bicycle um and 
the benefits of biking from an environmental perspective have and always will be an added bonus for me. Like I don't bike because it's good for the environment. I bike because it's fun. Honestly, I think it's an easier way to get around town. That being said, it has like framed my perspective on mobility um, and it has, you know, extended me, extended into the way I get around generally. So, um, and kind of like an antithesis, uh, not antithesis, like a, you know, I don't want to say hatred, but a, yeah. a, a dislike for, for automobiles. Well, um, yeah. So, you know, uh, a, prefer- a preference for alternative modes of transportation. Um, is kind of I'd say my, my biggest uh, contribution. Okay, and the um, the other the other way around. Um, so like yeah, go. I'd, I'd say for example, so like uh, this is actually a really funny story. We had um, Sarah's dad give us uh, his tickets to the Sixers game on Saturday night. He couldn't go, and he had a parking pass with his tickets. Uh-huh. And like, uh, you know, he was like, "Oh, why aren't you guys going to use the parking pass?" And I was like, because there's a perfectly adequate subway that'll take you directly to the stadium. Like, why would I use this parking pass? Like, that's absurd. Right, right. <laughs> right? And he was like, he was like, well, why not? Like, why would you want to take the subway? And I was like, why would you not want to take the subway? Like, right? And we got in, like this mini argument about it. And he's like, he's yeah. like, you know, one of these days you're gonna have to get over like, you know, <laughs> like your moral high ground here about like taking the subway and not driving places. <laughs> <laughs> one of these days, <laughs> right? And I was like, okay, whatever. It wasn't worth getting into. But it's like you know those sorts sure. of things. Like I try to be consistent with these sorts of things. So we were talking earlier about like before the show started about like Amazon and kind of uh, societal obsession with uh, package deliveries, uh, which I am currently very guilty of just because I moved into a new house mm-hmm. that's bigger than my last house. Mm-hmm. That's what I was going to ask you about. What do you feel guilty about? Yeah. yeah. So hopefully that's a, that's a temporary thing. But I, I really try to not um, order a lot of things um on the internet that i can get pretty easily mm-hmm. if i'm willing to walk or bike a short distance that is has already been delivered like why waste another delivery to my city when it's already here you know um well, just while we're on the subject of amazon real quick you told a story i gotta tell a story my show that mic stand you're using mm-hmm. the third mic stand i i ordered it from amazon they said they delivered it. They took a picture at my doorstep. I never got it. So I called up Amazon to tell them that I never got the mic scan. It's like a you know, cheap $20 mic scan stand you can buy anywhere in Philadelphia. Yeah. Right? I called them. They were Someone was picked up in the Philippines. <laughs> someone picked up in the Philippines and took all my information um, and said that they'll send me another one. Um. And then they just they just sent me another one, uh, like two days later. No, like with I didn't have to. They gave me a full refund on mm-hmm. the one that got delivered, but so it's, it was just kind of crazy that I ordered something that they delivered, and then I called them and said I never got it, and they just sent another one because they can. It was just that easy. It was so convenient. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, and I didn't. I didn't even have to wait long on the, to speak with someone on the phone. But then it was just like it was someone on the other side of the world, like assisting me. Where I could really, if I wanted to, I could just buy a a stand in Philly, like on my way home from work. But it was it was I know, easier so to much, talk to someone in the Philippines. Right, it's so much easier. So, yeah. I mean, it, it's really hard. Like I was at the grocery store the other day, and 
you know, we were we were buying shrimp, and I love shrimp. It's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> and we were we were at Whole Foods, and they have like, uh, you know, they give you like a one to four rating or whatever of like how ethically sourced it was, and like there was like the really cheap shrimp that was like farm raised in thailand and i was like i kind of want to get the really cheap shrimp because i'm at whole foods and like it's so much cheaper than everything else you know and it was like and you know but then i was like okay i'm gonna spend like the four dollars more a pound for this wild caught stuff from the usa because like i don't need to go to thailand to get my shrimp like we have Mm -hmm. shrimp in america and it's like you know, I was kind of telling you, we were talking about this before the show, like, I don't think that individual choice is, is having any impact whatsoever on conscience. Like, it's doing absolutely nothing. But, like, yes. it makes me feel slightly better. And it makes me feel less of a hypocrite when I'm yeah. critical let me, of other people's actions. And let me continue to defend you a, a, a little bit. Thank um, you. <laughs> I, I also, I think some of the, the problem with, 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 you know, consumer morality is you don't really know what ethically is is the right consumer product you know let's say maybe in buying that the the thai raised shrimp what you're doing is you're supporting a like a local economy that really needs that support and that they it's it's cheaper but maybe they you know maybe they um they fish it in a more sustainable manner you don't know all the, the particulars and really the more organic more expensive shrimp there might be other like uh, uh, other systems at play. You're absolutely right. You're never going to have the full picture for mm-hmm. sure. I mean, unless you like, if you're, especially if you're talking about food, unless you are raising it yourself, you know, you're never going to have the full picture for sure. Mm-hmm. But I, regardless of the effect on the local economy mm-hmm. and how they are actually sourcing and raising it if it indeed isn't coming from thailand versus coming from the united states like that alone is an emission thing like i don't you don't need to ship something halfway across the world that mm-hmm. already exists here do you know what i mean i know what you mean the, the thing is like but even something that's made in america could be made from like you could get parts of it that are you know from even still from thailand parts of it from all over the world, but like the final assembly is in America and they say, Oh, it was made in America. Like these kind of stamps of approval that you <laughs> see at the, they got bits and pieces of a shrimp and then put it together in the U S I don't know. This, like this. And this is by no means me getting like Trumpian, you know, like, uh, like, you know, you know, make America great again, sort of like, you know, buy America. But I, this is just like a, uh, you know, buy local sort of thing. Okay. So, but like you, for example, you like, you could be supporting a business, a business of like an American business. that's like all organic shrimp. I don't know what, whatever. Um, and you're just subsidizing the CEO's, you know, private jet. <laughs> because you're keeping their company alive. I don't know. But I'm you're just also saying, just like, assuming that like by buying something from Thailand that it's like your like, you know, hey, sort I'm of quaint you. quaint vision of like this sort of like Thai shrimp farmer and that it's not some massive like, you know, conglomerate agro, you know, multi international fish 
you know, company. Yeah, I, I don't know anything about the Thailand shrimp company that you're talking about. I don't know anything <laughs> about the other American shrimp company that you were talking about. But but I'm just saying that it's hard to make an, an moral choice as a consumer because you really don't know the particulars of, of everything. And that sometimes the cheaper inorganic or less quote-unquote environmental like it could be that the thai shrimp company just didn't have the money to afford the certification or something but they're they're just as sustainable like um but i i want to just go i want to go back to a subject that we i really can't can't overlook while i have you in particular timothy on this (laughs) podcast you mentioned that you got into cities because of a viking through them um, first of all, shout out to uh, Bicycle Diaries, David Byrne. I don't know if you have if you've read this, but but you must. I I read that book over the course of a uh, a few months. That was some toilet reading for me in college. <laughs> okay, sat right on the the back there. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's that's what I was thinking about because he was you know biking through New York before anyone else did, and that's I uh, see the city. I ran into David Byrne a few times on his bike when I lived in New York. Um, really biking yes i I actually the first time uh uh, i met david byrne i met him a couple times actually um the first time i met him was at the city bike launch in downtown new york it's incredible um uh, i went because i worked for bike new york at the time uh and i went and i was standing there waiting for uh mayor bloomberg to come out and um you know unveil city bike and I hear this voice behind me and it's like, oh, this, this faint voice talking like this, you know? And I'm like, I know that voice. Right. And, it, and so it's, it's David Byrne talking behind me and I turn around and for, you know, I, I don't know if we've talked about this, Henry, but like no. the, the talking heads are my favorite band, like ever. Okay. Um, we have not talked about that. And so David Byrne's like an icon for me. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, I turn around, he's like talking to these a couple other dudes and I'm like, I need to work my way into this conversation somehow. Um, <laughs> and so somebody makes a comment at, at some point, and I like, I'm like, oh, I, I know something about that. Like, I'll chime in. And so I like work my way into the conversation. And after like a couple minutes of talking, like somebody's like, oh, by the way, like I don't think we've met. And they introduce themselves to me, mm-hmm. and like everyone in the circle introduces themselves, and like the last person introduces themselves is David Byrne. He's like, hi, I'm David Byrne, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I know who you are. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and then like I like ran into him a couple times, yeah. like throughout the city like riding his bike like on the greenway or whatever and be like i'd be like hey david Byrne," <laughs> and then like he was like a really big bike advocate so yeah. i would actually like see him at a couple uh like bike advocacy things every once in a while but you know that's fantastic yeah. rad dude funny that, guy that's so cool um best biking cities uh Talk i i don't know i haven't um I haven't been to a lot of great biking cities. Like, I've never been to Copenhagen or Amsterdam. All right, or... pause, pause, pause. We'll make this a segment. So I'm going to name a city, and you're going to grade it on a scale of 1 to 10 on how good it is for biking. And if you haven't been to the city, you can just say pass. Okay. Okay, ready? Sure. Philadelphia. Um, that's complicated. For the record, we're in Philadelphia right now. So you have been there. I have been there. I biked in Philadelphia today. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know, man. 
I, I want to... It's just a number. I know. It's just, this one's really complicated. Cause you can like, give two numbers. Well, it's just like... Want to come back to it? This city would be such a great biking city if... I guess any city would be such a great biking city if there were less cars. But, like, it has such great potential. There's, like... Like, it doesn't... The city doesn't need a lot of infrastructure. Like, it doesn't need a lot of bike lanes. Like, it, like right. at least, like... At least the old city, right? Like, you know, like South Philly, like North Philly, like, you know, like a lot of these like small narrow streets, like you don't, there's not a lot of room for infrastructure. You don't need a lot of infrastructure. It just needs traffic calming measures. But like mm-hmm. at the current state, like Philly's not a great biking city. Mm-hmm. It's got potential, but yeah. I give it a five. Right. And w- a five. Yeah. Uh, and when you say potential, because it's a flat, because it's a grid. Yeah. It's a flat. Yeah. It's flat. It's grid. It's easy to get around. I rarely... Like I'm also I'm also biased, you know. Philly is a is a very large city, right? So it's very different talking about biking in Northeast Philly than it is talking about, you know, me biking around Graduate Hospital where I live. Um, it, but like you know, if you live within a reasonable distance to Center City, like, and that's where you live and work, like, it is a super great place to bike. Um, mm-hmm. Like I moved, I lived in New York before I moved here and I had a 12 mile commute to work. Like, you know, just to go hang out with friends. Like I was biking, you know, mm-hmm. three, four, five, six miles sometimes. What, like what rating would you give New York? Uh, a seven, seven higher than Philly. Oh yeah. New York's so much better for biking. <laughs> They've so much more infrastructure. It's insane. Really? Yeah. But it's, it's more crowded, right? It's busier. The cars go faster. Yeah, but there's way more dedicated space for bikes. Like, I feel safer riding a bike in New York yeah. than I do Philly. Certainly in recent years. Yeah. 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 Oh, it's all definitely in the last yeah, it's 10, ch- it's changed 10, 15 years. Incredibly. I, I notice every time I go back, there's a new, a new section of Avenue that's just been painted with a line of green. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Um, so I'm realizing the, that the flaw in, of this, uh, segment is i don't know all this the cities you've been to and i could just start naming cities and you're gonna say pass so i'll I'll let you just um why don't you tell us like a city that you've been to that has that has excellent biking infrastructure that you could talk about um so you maybe we're jumping we're jumping ahead here but i'll I'll name the city last because because i know you want to talk about it we segue into it well, no, I've already mentioned it, so we can just talk about it. <laughs> okay, yes, please. But uh, I really like Berlin. Berlin. I, I like biking in Berlin, but we can we can come back to that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I didn't go, when I was in Berlin, I, I, didn't, I did not go biking, and it was, it was pretty cold. I didn't see a ton of people biking. Uh, t- tell me what you like about Berlin. It didn't strike me as a, a, a biking city. It just seemed more like there was a lot of elevated rail, people walking around, but... It's not, yeah, it wasn't like... You know, I don't think it's on the level of like a, a Copenhagen or something. Um, it was also warm when I was there. It was like mid to late April. Okay. It was nice. Uh, it's also just a, you know, it's a different mentality. They have like a lot of side paths. Um, they don't, you know, it's not like a lot of on street facilities. A lot of like, uh, there was like stuff by the water. Um, there's just a lot of respect for biking there uh it's different um i was living in i was studying abroad in in austria when i was there i really liked biking in in austria in salzburg Mm. salzburg and vienna were really nice um 
Yeah, Berlin was nice. I mean, most places in in Europe were nice. Uh, How about have you been to Amsterdam? No, I haven't been to to Amsterdam. Um, well, what would you give Berlin on a scale of one to ten? I was only there for a couple of days, so it's hard to say. Um, but I'd, I'd give it a seven. So about as good as New York. Yeah, I mean it's different. Um, How about Salzburg? Uh, I'd give Salzburg an eight. It's so much easier though, because it's such a small city, mm-hmm. and they have a lot of car-free streets, mm-hmm. and they have a and they have like they have really nice paths by the river um and they just have like they don't have sidewalks like they have like a lot of um quiet residential streets that serve as kind of these bike through fairs um that you know cars and bikes just kind of use organically together right uh there's just respect you know that's that's the that's the biggest thing and that's the thing that that i you know that that could make philly so great is like mm-hmm. if you respected this as another mode of transportation you wouldn't need a lot of infrastructure here it's like here's mm-hmm. my biggest beef with 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 biking in philly is like you're riding down the street you know the car behind you is honking at you riding on your butt I, and let me preface this with, with by saying that i fully recognize that cyclists are also can be giant jerks and break the law. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, improvement that needs to be done there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you, you're honking at the, the bike that's that's taking up the lane, yet you stop for the, the Lyft and Uber driver that's pulling over to let the guy out. You stop for the person parallel parking. You stop for the bus that's pulling over to let passengers get on and off. But you won't slow down like three miles an hour for the bike in front you know so it's like just those sorts of things it's like yeah every other mode is given a pass but not the bike where do you think that respect comes from time and frequency Mm -hmm. like if you just have more of them yeah so but a lot of it unfortunately stems from also putting infrastructure in place that gets more bikes on the road so it's catch 22 yeah but I think speed is a big thing. Like I like my biggest thing is traffic calming measures. Like mm-hmm. if you can find a way to slow cars down, that gets more bikes on the road. Hmm. And and do you think there's what is the roadblock to Philadelphia going from a five in your eyes to say a seven or an eight? What is the roadblock? Yeah. How do we get there? You said it has all this potential, so how does Philadelphia live up to its potential? Uh, I don't know. Unfortunately, city council has a lot of control. Over is it, that. But is it just about allowing bike lanes or is there something more? Um, I mean, it's partially bike lanes. I just don't think bike, bike lanes are the, the cure-all for anything. You know, I think mm-hmm. there in general just has to be a larger cultural shift. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's that's hard to implement overnight. But I think yeah, I mean yeah, you would hope that it's just kind of uh, comes with a greater frequency, but that that doesn't seem to be happening. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I mean I think the it, it, it's it's common intuition to say that one of the arguments against bike lanes in a city like Philadelphia was that there are long winters in, in northern cities so that, you know, you're only using them that space half the year. But but some of the European cities that we mentioned 
in Berlin is is, is sure is look cool. at Amsterdam you you mentioned uh, Copenhagen. Copenhagen you know what city has the uh, highest percentage of bicycle commuters in the country in the U.S. um in the U.S. yeah no uh, Minneapolis Minneapolis so wh- why is that I I don't know I mean somehow they have cultivated a, a bike friendly culture there and yeah a lot of it Very has to do with, a lot of it, it has to do with with building really bike friendly infrastructure um you know they also have an amazing park system there so they have you know uh built this web and and woven together a great trail network linking together their parks so there's there's partially that but they also have um they have a lot of you know bungalow neighborhoods that allow for these sort of um quiet neighborhood thoroughfares that are you know don't get a lot of um street traffic through Mm -hmm. them that you know cities like philadelphia don't have that luxury you know any sort of um any sort of uh you know row home street is going to have a lot of a lot of cars coming down of it so right parking both sides yeah exactly so yeah. yeah i mean i think that's the other thing is that like parking is a big thing in philly you know yeah you know you have people parking in the median people parking on the sidewalk there's never enough parking anywhere so right. you know good and luck that- getting uh parking taken away for a bike lane <laughs> another great example is montreal montreal exactly. is an incredible yeah. bike you've been montreal i know i've never been to montreal actually montreal that's that's the best biking city i've been to in north america without doubt the lanes are protected. They're everywhere, and the bike share system is is excellent. Um, you, I, you know, I didn't. I you just get a daily pass, and it's for like a set fee, not not too expensive. And you have to return the bikes every thirty minutes. That's the only catch, or you get charged extra. That's how they make money. Yeah, but there's stations everywhere that it's so easy to do that. And you you just you bike wherever you want. It's like seven bucks a day or yeah, whatever. The, the Bixie bikes up there, right? Is that what they're called? I forget what. Yeah, yeah they kind of brought bike share to North America. They were like the first ones. They're really nice, and it's not a flat city, and it's it's all it's cold most of the year. Honestly, I think there's more examples of cold cities that do yeah. biking better. I mean, if you're you clearly know, looking at Northern Europe as kind of the the example. Um, you see a lot more northern European cities than southern European cities are, um, that are really the, the example for that. Cool. Anyway, I don't want to hijack uh, the conversation talking about biking. <laughs> I brought that up. Um, all right, let, let's go back to Amazon for a second. Um, will you continue buying off Amazon? And yeah, I where mean, is and what does it take? Like I know Amazon just bought. Whole Foods, um, Amazon is now doing Amazon streaming. Amazon is taking over everything. Yeah, um, and we continue to use it all the time. I just got another Amazon gift card for the holidays. <laughs> I mean, we totally. I was actually listening. I was listening to Marketplace this morning. They were talking yeah. about Amazon, like has a like web hosting services. Um, not web hosting, like basically like data analytics, like basically they run like analytics for like the NFL. So like basically all the players have like chips in their jerseys that like calculate the the analytics for them. Like the city of Baltimore Mm -hmm. runs like their analytics via Amazon, like cloud computing, 
like uh, I don't know. They, there's just like so many different services that they provide. That they have. Yeah, yeah it's insane. Do, does it bother you at all? And this is you know, tangent, tangentially related. Does it bother you that so much of the, your data on who you are has been collected, and that at some point you've inputted, you know, your credit card online, your passport number, you know, your whole purchase history is there. You know, everything you've watched and Googled, <laughs> every little detail. Um, is it, is that, does that ever concern you or is that just kind of like the, the, you know, there's 10 to the 81st power atoms in the universe. We're going to lose a hundred, a trillion, what not dollars with climate change in 2100. Yeah. The global population will only be 1 billion in 2150. I Do mean, these just wash over you? Yes and no, because it's. I mean, it's kind of similar to climate change. It's like I've somewhat resigned myself to the fact that, like, that's just the way it is, man. Like, yeah, right. people got my data. Like, if somebody wants to know everything there's know about me, they can. Just the same way, like, oh, well, yeah, we're all gonna die. It is what it is. <laughs> and, but we and we also we don't know quite where it's heading either. Um, what do you mean in terms technologically of technologically speaking? Like we said at the top of this podcast, we were joking that. In the intro, I had, to, I had to say your name was Tom Thee Haney, even though it's Tim Haney. Dude. Sorry. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> but but you know, and we, we hide behind these pseudonyms so that we can't get Googled by the HR lady from you know company XYZ on, on LinkedIn. Um, but you know, what if like in the future our audio is also kind of searchable and they could... It, it's just as search searchable. Like what is it? What does it even matter? It probably will be. I'm sure that technology already exists in some capacity. It's going to be um, used more. And... Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, who knows what the future holds in that? I mean, you know, look at like deep fake videos that are that are surfacing now. Um, Those are terrifying. Yeah, I feel like it's I, just like yeah. you know, with every technological advancement, like with with every like amazing, beautiful you know, groundbreaking possibility it brings, there's always a dark side. Mm -hmm. What technology, so let's let, forget climate change for a second. What technology are you most afraid of? What technology are you in the most need of therapy for? I'll, I'll start with, with one. I've been watching this Netflix show, shout out, called Unnatural Selection. It's about genetic engineering. And, you know, I mean... I don't need to say much more about it, but genetic engineering opens up all these cans of worms. There's so much promise in terms of the diseases. You mean like CRISPR? CRISPR. Yeah. Yes. CRISPR. And it's so easy. CRISPR, you can do it. People are doing it right now out of their garages. Mm -hmm. It's not expensive to set Wait, up. Really? And there's all this black market stuff. Yeah. It's called biohacking. To genetically modify themselves or their offspring? Um People have injected themselves. Uh, they're trying to create products to cure like HIV, um, but also like there. Like one guy was pre-selling a product to cure HIV, but he wasn't a licensed like scientist. He didn't yeah. really know what he was doing. Yeah. Um, someone just uh, wanted to use it not for diseases, but for like cosmetic and like sort of a plastic surgery, kind of almost like a toy. Like, you can make yourself stronger. We can sell this to you to do that. And he was saying that the unethical thing right now would be to use it as, as a disease-curing thing because it opens up the floodgates to scammers. Because the people most desperate for this type of medic medication are those that 
are are really in need of it. So it should be only available right now to those who just want it and can experiment with it. It was it was very it's That's... very bizarre and but it really opens up these interesting questions because he's right and this one company you know purporting to um, have an idea of how to cure HIV they didn't really really know what they were doing and um, if these things become legal there's there could be a lot of CRISPR scams. But how how is this different than you know? regular pharmaceutical companies and the existing medical industry that at least in theory should be heavily regulated to have safeguards against this sort of thing. Because I think right now the pharmaceuticals, they are, they are regulated. Right. They're, so shouldn't we regulate yes. gene yes. genetically modifying? That's the, I mean that that's the kind of the great debate right now, because if you regulate it to what extent you regulate it, and with regulation comes cost. So then people who want these products, all of a sudden now they can't afford it as if you could That's afford fair. it when it were unregulated. Um, but, it, but it's just kind of this technology that opens up this whole, this whole can of worms. Um, you know, you, you turned 31. I want to ask you about that. I'm, I'm turned 31 next week. Um, but the whole concept of like, if you could genetically engineer your kid, to, to make them immune from whatever, um, you know, but we, the, the effects of CRISPR haven't really been proven on humans long-term, but the this, this scientist says like, oh yeah, you genetically modify this, you know, your kid won't be born with this defect. Would you do that? Or would you, if the scientist said like, hey, you can choose by the way, you know, you want uh, blue blue eyes or brown eyes? Like, would you subscribe to that? This is actually really interesting that you bring this up. Um, well, first of all, I'll answer your question. I'd like to say no. Um, you know, but what who, if all the other parents were doing that? Right. Who who knows what you'd actually do? I, I'd like to say no. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like. I find that idea pretty repulsing. Mm-hmm. But you know, if in fifty years from now, if everyone is doing that, you know, right? Who, like, who knows what the norm is? That they might sound like yeah. really normal in fifty years. No, I'm, um, I'm I'm with you, by the way, on that. But um, but yeah. So there was like uh, there was a, a this American Life podcast um recently. Uh, I forget what it's called. I want to say like all the small things, but that that's like a Blink One Eighty Two song. Yes, but it was is. like uh, it was about what's my edge again. <laughs> it was about small. It was something about small things, okay. and it was um, they were interviewing this family who gave their son growth hormones, and it was basically it was talking about families who were giving their children growth hormones for kids that were like basically in like the 40th percentile kids that were protected to be like you know five eight when like the average height is like five nine or something like that right right like people who do not need it at all right right, who, right, are, right. who are coming to endocrinologists and we're saying like my kid needs this growth hormone like he's like gonna be below average and they're like dude he's gonna be like in the 40th percentile that's like almost average he's <laughs> gonna be fine right 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 and um uh yeah and they were just talking about that like about these growth hormones that they were giving these people that didn't even need it um and these doctors that were just willing to do it and um basically talking about the fact that there's like these unknown consequences to these drugs that they're giving these kids and that there's like hypothetically a lot of uh, associated consequences down the road that are unknown at this point in time 
because it's like a relatively new thing that they've been doing in the last like couple decades. Right. Then but, there's there's the other attraction of it can only be known if people try it. In exactly. A way. So a lot of people who they, they feel like like this guy who was taking it for HIV, he was saying that you know even if it doesn't work, like he will contribute to the overall understanding of CRISPR. And that's you know that's one thing if you're if you're like if you are an adult and you have this you know potentially life-threatening disease and you want to use that and as you know an option as a potentially life-saving option right and that's your choice and if you recognize that there are uh downsides and if one of the upsides is hey i could be a guinea pig like i'm willing to do that sure like you can do that you know I think it's different if you're like saying, "Hey, I'm gonna have my you know eight year old son take this mm-hmm. drug," but but sure, if you're like, "Hey, man, I have HIV, yeah. I might die if or if I take this, I might die if I don't take it." Hey, but right. it might save my life, right. or I might die, and people might find out that this is not a thing that people should take. Like, sure, at the end of the guy, like power yeah. to him, you know, sure. it's his yeah. choice. However, what the show also demonstrates, and this is how it kind of ties back to climate change. There's the next phase of CRISPR and genetic engineering is something called gene drive, where they use it to wipe out an entire species. Because, for example, the mosquitoes um, that carry malaria in in uh, West Africa, mm-hmm. um, or they talked about the invasive rats in New Zealand. Um, that are spreading Lyme disease or some, some something, or they were killing the other native animals or something. Um, but what they can do is they can inject as, um, they can inject the species that ha- uh, are infertile um, and they can kind of wipe out an entire species or they can, they can uh, they can make a, 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 it can change a species so that maybe it doesn't it's not susceptible to Lyme disease or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so now you're moving beyond the individual, and you're moving into an entire, and you're moving to evolution itself. Right. And that to me is kind of what is scary. But at the same time, if you can do. That instead of pesticides, say, like let's say um, a certain bug is killing all the crops or something, and the right now the village is just using chemicals, tons of chemicals, you know, which we know as hor- horrible effects. And instead of using the chemicals, they can kind of biologically inject a new, um, a new line of, of what whatever insect or. Uh, pest into the uh, into the environment to cure that without chemicals, that's pretty tempting. But yeah, we just we just don't know what will happen. Well, like we could just end up killing all the rats, and if we kill all the rats, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Um, I mean, if it's if 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 you, if your aim is to just eradicate that individual species and you accomplish that, sure, then. You know, it's fine. But I think the problem is you have probably a boatload of unintended consequences. I mean, right. Mother Nature is a complex web of ecosystems. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and there are probably a number of other species that rely on the species that you are trying to eradicate that you yeah. probably do not realize. I mean, that's the story of how all the, I forget the fact, it's something like a third of all bird species have passed away in the last 50 years or something. Like you kill the birds because you put the pesticides to protect the trees and then the, the worm mm-hmm. eats, gets, and the birds eat the worm. And then the birds die because now they're infested. Right. I feel like... I feel like I remember reading about this a while ago. Haven't we already had the ability to eradicate mosquitoes for a while, and we haven't done it for this exact reason because we're worried, we're worried about the potential consequences of eradicating them? That's possible, but but has it been through CRISPR? I don't think so. I feel like I've read this like years before CRISPR. I could be completely wrong, but it's possible like, maybe it was just a hypothetical conversation maybe uh, with with chemicals i mean we've had bug sprays but forever. It, yeah but it was essentially like um kind of a a, a, a neuterization it was like a yeah. you know basically if infecting you infect a series of um, mosquitoes yeah and through um you know they basically infect each other by attempting gotcha. to repopulate. So it's and the same of, kind of concept, yeah. I think. But I think with CRISPR, with gene drive, it just happens much faster. Like it's like a few generations or hmm. something. It just happens like very fast. Um, so And it's not like diminishing the number. It's like eradicating the species. Gotcha. Um, but when I was watching that, I was thinking like what functions do mosquitoes serve that you know make them important to, to people because like for example bees which are annoying to people they pollinate flowers well, right but it's not a, it's not a question of what what function do they serve for people it's what function do they for, serve for the earth and the entire ecosystem because mm-hmm. it's like you're saying with the worm like it might not serve us a thing but it might but it might serve yes. some something else which then serves something else which then serves us so you're ready for a pretty sinister explanation um population control <laughs> so like mosquitoes by spreading this is pretty awful i don't know i can't believe i'm saying this but like spreading like these diseases like is just a way of the earth kind of controlling the population you know like because a lot of the, the reason that we're getting we get these diseases because we we develop areas that are kind of like swamplands that people aren't really we didn't we're not biologically we didn't evolve to to be living in. Do you think um, that's true? I don't know. I, I'm I I wonder about it though. Like I know a lot of the old older um like some of the villages in South America, the older Incan villages all in the mountains because they're away from uh the rainforest, um away from the mos- mosquitoes. They're in the mountains. Um so uh, before uh, this podcast, we watched this video on, on the growth of population of human beings and just how it's, I mean, it's just, it's been, it, it, there, there's been a, a true boom, a population explosion um, that is truly remarkable if you watch from this visualization. Yeah, so what they say, uh, 200,000 years to get to a million people and then... Uh... In the last 200 years, we got to our current population yeah, after like that? Yeah, 200,000 years to get to 1 billion people, and now we're at like 9 billion or something. Yeah. Um, yeah, so 
so I mean, is the should the goal of all like technology be to have you know to like to to create more people in a sense to like have people live longer? Is that should that be still be the goal to have everybody be more immune to death, or is death like an important part of of life, not you know of of the cycle? Well, we're about to find out. <laughs> oh shit, man. <laughs> oh shit, way to bring it way to bring it all the way home. Uh no, like I mean, but seriously, like I feel like we're uh When do you think shit hits the fan? We're playing a fun game here. Like, it's I, like I feel like we're, we're not... really testing the testing like the, the full capacity of Earth. Like it's like Yeah. If 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 we are, you know, using technology for that sole purpose of seeing how long we can make life last and to really yeah. prolong life as much as possible and to save as many lives as possible, which like, you know, is an admirable goal. Mm. Uh, you know, there, there will be a point in time where mother nature will say halt. You, and when you is save too many lives? And when is that point? It's, it's not like right now we're, we're talking about climate change as if it's like something that's coming. It's upcoming. Like you can make the argument that you know, for a lot of places that have been affected by by a severe storm, it it, ha- it has already come and wrecked havoc. Right. But like, when do you think, like, when when will it undoubtedly like be here? Like, at what point will we say like, shit, like this is cl- climate change is here. <laughs> like the White Walkers have have uh, stormed the gates. I think yeah, I think climate change is here when you have like. When you have like major Western cities, like it's gonna have to be like white people, right? It's, gonna, <laughs> it's like seriously, it's gonna have to affect white people, right? Yeah, and it's gonna be like a major like Western city is going to have to be like permanently evacuated. Like you're gonna have to like a like a city like Miami or like Houston yeah. is just unlivable and permanently needs to be like evacuated. What about Venice? Houston was evacuated, but like you can't return. You can't like it's return. just unlivable. What about Venice? Yeah, maybe you're right because Venice is like basically already there, and we're like you know, <laughs> and we're just like it's uh, climate change. That's for our grandchildren to deal with. Yeah, maybe you're right because like that's kind of <laughs> like, like already happening. Like, will we will we ever feel like it's here, or will uh, always be some future? Yeah, I guess you're right. Shit, man, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. It is. It is also. Sometimes I do think about though how like our parents' generation grew up in the Cold War and they had bomb threats and they would have to hide under the desks and in in the atomic age, um, you know, it did seem like the apocalypse was it was not that it was decades away like it feels like climate changes but it, like it could be at any moment. But like climate change doesn't totally feel like that. The difference with that is it's like, you know, your finger's like always on the trigger with the Cold War, right? Yeah. But like you always have the you're 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 always within control, right? Like you know, you always have like you're you're like the nuclear code is always right there, you know, like yeah, you you right. you're ready for destruction at any second, but like Right. If we didn't press that, if we don't press anything, we'll we'll be okay. Right. But like this is like <laughs> Yeah. That's like inaction, right? Like you, you just have to do nothing. This is like you have to do a lot, a, a lot of things. Yeah, and it's like I feel like America is really good at 
you know, at the final at the final second, really kind of rallying together and accomplishing what needs to be done, right? Like you you like in throughout the course of our history, yeah. like we just like put it off and we put it off and like when things really push comes to shove and we finally need to get it done, we get it done, right? Like but this isn't like that. You can't just put it off till the end. Like it needs like right like firm planning for really long periods of time. Right. And there's there's nothing to get done. Like this the right. CO2 is in like, the atmosphere. Right. And it's not like you just like, oh, like we're going to pass a bill at the 11th hour like, oh, cool, we we solved climate change, you know. <laughs> not right. to mention right. the fact that like half the guys responsible don't even believe in it. Right. That we're still subsidizing fossil fuels and we're still cutting down right. the rainforest, working on clean coal. Yeah. yeah. So. All right. Yeah, I don't know what the answer is, man. Mm-hmm. Well, children, you don't you don't want to genetically engineer your children, but this seems wrong. Has parental nihilism hit you yet? No, I I actually I used to feel that way um, when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And by parental nihilism, we mean uh, the idea of you know with the threat of climate change affecting your you know desire or feel like it's the worth worthwhile to have kids um you felt like that when you were younger what do you mean by that uh i well i feel like i was even more cynical when i was younger um Hmm. but i was like you know i was like oh why would you have children like everything's doomed like but this is a good opportunity to end this on a positive note what has made you less cynical well it's also like you know like I, i was I was single then like I I, I was in I, I couldn't imagine having it's harder to imagine having children at least for me when I didn't have the person that I was going to have children with you know like mm-hmm. now that I'm getting married and I have Sarah and I have this woman that like I want to have children with like mm-hmm. it's a lot easier yeah. to want to have children and it. to see the optimism in having a child you know what I mean yeah that's, and like that's gorgeous. you know maybe I'm just like blinded and and uh you know forgetting like all of my original like uh <laughs> sounds like these you've been are listening to a lot of talking heads yeah. <laughs> you psycho killer you <laughs> once but in no, a lifetime but like it's, you know but it's much easier to like see the your beauty. beautiful house with your beautiful life <laughs> it's much easier to see the beauty and the joy and the desire in having a child when you have the woman that you're going to have a child with you know what i mean yeah as opposed to like some like insufferable like single 24 year old that i was at the time that like was like this is awful why would you bring a child into this world sort of you know person so love is the best climate change therapy it is there is it is so thank you for tuning in (laughs) and on a it's been a pleasure um yeah any final words i don't know how you, you can top that but uh no um Thanks, uh, thanks for having me. Um, I'm worried about these rats in New Zealand. Uh, speaking of Sarah's, we we've been talking about going to New Zealand oh, okay. for our honeymoon, so I hope oh. we don't get Lyme disease. No, I think they'll they'll all be dead. Maybe they maybe they're gone <laughs> from that volcano explosion. Gene dropped. Oh, um, did you see that the volcano that exploded in New Zealand yesterday? The volcano exploded or erupted? <laughs> it erupted. Yes, it thank erupted. you. Um, I didn't see. Yeah, that. maybe it killed all the rats. 
Um, maybe I should get one of those. Uh, maybe those... they the volcano erupted because they killed the rats. Maybe, maybe that's true. Maybe they threw them all in there and then it's they all, erupted. It's all a sustainable. Uh, maybe I should system. get one of those rolling suitcases for uh, rolling cases. New, for, yeah, rolling case for our trip to New Zealand. Yeah. What What do you have now? A backpack. Yeah, we just I've got like a you backpack and a, and a duffel bag. I don't have a real suitcase, like a hard uh, shell case that you have wheels on it and a handle that you roll around in an airport, you know? Yeah, rolling cases, you can get them on Amazon. See, that's problematic. No, wait, I'm sorry. Is there like a local gotta, store in Philadelphia where I can get them? But I just Someone just sent a message to my beeper. You can't get rolling cases on Amazon. They're, they've gone green. Oh, really? Yeah, nice. rolling cases... They are part. This is crazy. They are parting ways with Amazon, citing the transportation emissions that Amazon drivers make. They will only be. Are they del- are they hand delivered by someone rolling them? Is that how they, <laughs> they uh, roll them right to your door? <laughs> you they they're only sold in the city that they are made. That's they said that's the most sustainable thing. They are they're handcrafted in patagonia in ushwasha and they don't ship them because of technology so oh so i have to go i i have to go fly and get them yeah it seems hypocritical doesn't it yeah (laughs) yeah plus when you go to fly to get them like what you're gonna have to like use wear a backpack you know you're gonna you're like how are you gonna bring your things yeah, and then do I throw my backpack out there? There must be a giant trash can full of backpacks in Patagonia now from all the people getting their rolling suitcases. Wow. I, I must That's have... the real climate change problem we need to be talking about. Oh, God. Rolling cases. I don't know if we're going to have you back after this. <laughs> well, probably we will. They pay us after all. I don't That's know where true. they get their money. Uh, well, we know where you get your money. They're probably funded like Jeff Bezos the same way like Exxon funds like carbon tax bills or not. So it's been fun. Today is December 9th, 2019. Timothy Haney, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Will you come back? Would you come back? Yeah, sure. I'll be back in season two. <laughs> okay. This is season two. Oh, season three. Season three. Or later on in season three.